Like he was a communist and he was he was smoking marijuana. Well, everyone knows if you smoke a doobie, you become a communist, Brandon. That's, <laughs> that's... Hi and welcome to episode of Center Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Center Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. For April, we are diving in to the journalism genre. A genre I've kind of liked for many years but also not a lot on it in terms of uh uh conversations um and it's it's really weirdly been on our list for a while i think also we were planning on doing this like the peter weir month uh doing this last year before covid happened and then everything kind of went away um but yeah it's an interesting one because most people usually think I think like a handful of movies when it comes to journalism films, like that, yeah. but there are a lot like, so Thomas, what are some that you think of when you think of journalism movies? First thought is all the president's men. Yeah. Immediately. That's number one. Yeah. Uh, probably spotlight after that. I haven't even seen it, but I, I think of the paper, that movie, the paper. Yeah. Cause, right? cause because I love it so much. That's and why because you think they used to have that poster <laughs> in the Zemeckis building at, yeah, at, USC. at USC. Yeah. The, yeah. They did. Great cast of paper. Under, um, I think un, some people don't like it, but I think great cast. Newsies? I don't know. Does that count? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know if it's on our list, but Newsies kind of does count. I got to not making. They're not writing the news, but they're selling it. Well, they are writing the news at one point. That's mm. the whole bit towards the end. Like they make their own paper. Wow, I didn't know as much about Newsies. Uh, the whole like the, to basically get the word out about their strike at the end of the at the third act of the movie. There's a whole bit where Bill Pullman sings in it. That's the thing. Yeah, it's it's hard for me when I hear the words like journalism movies. It's hard for me to get past all the presidents, man. That's just like, boom, first thing in my head. Yeah, that's kind of the number one. Uh, and then Spotlight kind of, I think, a little bit of the of the current like kind of public consciousness. Spotlight became the big thing because the Oscar wins. Um, but yeah, the thing about but the thing about journalism movies, um, they really can tackle a lot of different forms of journalism. And that's what we're going to try to talk about um, this month. There's a lot of different perspectives you can take with a journalism movie. Um, the simple tactic of a journalism movie is an investigation piece, which kind of plays like a detective movie of some kind. And I mm-hmm. think all the president's men kind of fits in that category. I think probably spotlight a little bit because they're investigative journalists. Zodiac. is another big one uh, that kind of comes to mind. Um, and there are movies that deal with the ethics of journalism, which is something like uh, The Year of Living Dangerously, I feel, that we dealt with last mm-hmm. month with Weir. Yeah. Um, an- another film called Shattered Glass. I want to shout that one out. Mm-hmm. Re- probably Hayden Christensen's best role, honestly. You don't have to say probably. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. It is, hey, it's, it's, it's his best role because it, it, what some of the, like, the critiques that he always got with, say, playing Anakin really come in handy for that movie. Uh, it, it, it really really works it's like he's he kind of it's 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 kind of amazing to watch it, it goes with my theory that i think every actor can give you a great performance you just have to cast in the right way yep. um and there are movies that deal with television news like broadcast news which we'll talk about later this month network network is another one yes just how broadcast news or, or news television news can affect uh our mindset and culture and kind of way of thinking as we current we we know in our current society today what and uh yeah there's there's no no examples of that yeah uh and there are movies that deal with tabloid journalism which is what our movie today sweet smell of success is about 
And so, but first we'll, we'll dive a little bit more in journalism, the journalism genre. So Thomas, when you think of journalism movies, the ones we kind of talked about, what are like some tropes you think of? Um, I feel like there's always got to be a deadline. Like someone's always got a deadline. Yeah, there's a lot of deadlines. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like you said, I think I think the question of ethics comes up in any of these films, whether or not there there are yeah. you know there is like a specific subgenre that is just about journalistic et- ethics and integrity. But even in these like investigative ones, it's the ethics are always going to be a question. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All the presence men, I know the big thing of just like finding the right sources was kind of the big thing and revealing sources. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. whole thing with like the deep throat source that he, that uh, uh, Redford character has. Um, yeah, that's a big part of kind of all of them. I think Zo- I don't know if Zodiac fits into that. I don't know if Zodiac really has conversations about ethics as much. Yeah. I think I think it's really played as more uh, journal like a detective piece. Yeah. Well, and one thing that comes up in Zodiac that I, I definitely think is a trope is this idea that it is an it's an all-consuming career. Like your yeah personal life will suffer because of being a journalist. I mean, yeah, that's um, a big th- yeah, yeah. But I think that that pops up in almost almost anything that you watch. It's 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 almost like there there can be a lot of similarities, and like you said, like an, an investigative journalism movie is kind of like a detective film. But there's there's a lot of similarities with a cop movie there's uh there's going to be a scene where you get called into the chief's office or the editor's office and they're like (laughs) we're taking you off the story we're taking you off the case give me your badge and gun give me your typewriter um there there's always unfortunately a very tired trope but there's usually going to be like a harried wife at home who's like you're never you're never home you're never around yeah that's in the paper that's in the paper that one's the paper but i mean that's that's even you know we see that in zodiac with robert Downey jr's character almost like having like a complete nervous breakdown from how far he's he's pushed this story and how much it's invaded his personal life and then with jake gyllenhaal too with like once he gets married once he becomes consumed by the story of this Mm -hmm. of zodiac his marriage suffers at home well i think of you're talking about the uh there's always like an editor that's like kind of like here's the deadline uh it's usually always played by an actor of like some prestige mm-hmm. if you notice yep. it's like in the paper it's robert duvall uh i the one that for some reason came to mind is state of play i don't know why with russell crowe and rachel mcadams and mm-hmm. great cast ben affleck and it's helen mirren who's the editor but yeah there's a lot of that and there's kind of some other ones i don't know if we'll talk about as much but like other like kind of biopic journalism movies as well kind of end of the tour um, I think you maybe almost famous fits in that category as well. I mean, I, you know, there's a little movie called Citizen Kane. There's that one too. <laughs> yeah, like, almost famous. I think of too. Going back with a movie that, on the surface, is not fully about journalism. There are questions about ethics when, mm-hmm. like, in terms of special, specifically with with uh, um, Patrick Fugit's character uh and philip seymour hoffman kind of talking about how he should tell the story like don't be their friends like be See, that's be the truthful. thing about uncool people man <laughs> i'm always awake um but yeah and then there's also kind of another subgenre of kind of like the war war journalism mm-hmm. kind of movies it's the under fire it's the uh uh live from baghdad salvador i think even reds um uh, what was that one? whiskey tango foxtrot yeah, that's all here. Yeah, with Tina Fey. So yeah, there's a lot of different 
types of journalism movies. Uh, speaking of that one, that one is shout out in terms of like uh, a detective movie that's also a journalism movie is Fletch. Mm, like that's, that's really <laughs> that's like I always thought it was a detective movie growing up before I watched it, and it's actually a journalism yeah, movie. Yeah. He's a journalist. He's an undercover journalist. That you know that that also would include uh, the great Disney Channel original movie Get a Clue. Starring Lindsay Lohan, <laughs> in which she's a reporter for the school newspaper, and she uncovers a vast uh, conspiracy. Yeah what, are, yeah, what are some school newspaper movies? Are there any more besides Get a Clue? There's always like, there's always usually like some sort of like, like a, some like journalist, uh, some student journalist breaks the like breaks something about the school. Oh, like Bad Education. Did you see that with Hugh Jackman? I, I did not. I, did I think not. that's like a, I think that's like a plot line at one point. That's kind of how he gets like uncovered or something. Is that it's a student who does like an expose on him, or it's like they're doing a story about like something that the school was buying, and mm-hmm. they're like, "How do we have the money for this?" And they did a whole story, and that's like kind of uncover. I guess spoiler alert for Bad Education. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of different things. But today we're, we're going to try to explore some of those themes the rest of the month. Today we're going to be talking about kind of tabloid journalism and there's not really a lot of movies with tabloid journalism but weirdly i think tabloid journalism is very important nowadays i think it's very prominent i think it's weirdly become part of the culture even more maybe not as much the the, the lines have kind of blurred a little bit because it used to be that you bought a newspaper or you bought a tabloid and now you're scrolling online and and you don't really know what you're clicking on yeah, and I were, when watching Sweet Smell of Success, I was kind of reminded a little bit of all the like British royal stuff going on right now mm-hmm. in England and the yeah. tabloids and all that. It was kind of reminiscent of what's happening with Prince Harry and 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 Meghan Markle and and all that. But yeah, so today's movie we're talking about Sweet Smell of Success, released in 1957 and directed by Alexander McKendrick, and it stars Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. This film is currently available to rent on Apple TV and Amazon. It was at one point streaming, and now it is not, but you can rent it there. Also, there's a very nice Criterion Blu-ray and DVD if you ever, if you have access, access to that. Try to check that out. Um, so the film stars Tony Curtis as Cindy Falco, a sleazy press agent in New York City who fights to get his clients' names in the popular entertainment gossip column, which is written by J.J. Hunsecker, played by Burt Lancaster. The film follows Falco as he travels down a dark rabbit hole in order to please J.J. and hopefully move up in his career. Falco is tested, seeing how far he will go to climb the ladder of success by planting stories or fake stories in the New York tabloids. One big thing, his kind of big mission, is to break up the uh, relationship of J.J.'s sister and her boyfriend, who is a guitarist at a local club. Uh, J.J., a, a jazz guitarist a jazz guitarist let's be yeah and so basically falco was cindy was supposed to do it um but because he hasn't succeeded jj is no longer printing stories in his column about sydney's clients and so sydney has to go darker and deeper to 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 please jj he's kind of a lap dog for jj is what it is what were your initial thoughts in watching this film again thomas yeah i, I actually watched this one for the first time last year when when they added it to the criterion channel it had come very highly recommended from from many people um and it's it's dark it's one of those movies 
it's kind of kind of like Citizen Kane. It's one of those movies that you have to kind of go back and remind yourself what year this was made because yeah. it feels so twisted and the cinematography, I believe it's yeah. uh, James Wong Howe. James Wong Howe. Who, yes. who shot it, makes it look very modern. It's all set in New York. I think I, I watched the Criterion feature on, on the cinematography of it. And I think James Wong Howe said, I, I think we were the first people to ever shoot in New York and be like, I'm going to shoot from the yeah. sidewalk and point up and so yeah. there's a lot of these shots of like framing the characters against these huge skyscrapers behind them um and it's it's really crisp uh it's a lot of people consider it to be a, mm -hmm. a noir just in kind of the contrast yeah. and the way it's shot but all all that to say with with like the subtext that's going on and the dialogue and everything you watch it and you can you can forget how much this movie like pushed the envelope as yeah. far as like what was acceptable yeah both technologically and from like a story subject point of view yeah and also just like how and i'll go into this more later just how it was breaking the images of tony curtis and burt lancaster yeah because they were they were not they, they were not accepted in these roles i will tell you that like they were making like swashbuckling, like kind of technicolor, like good guy movies. And this is like, they're sleazy, terrible people. Um, Curtis, maybe not as much. I think it's, I mean, this movie is very much a morality tale. Um, I think there's a few things they could have changed to make it a little bit stronger in the morality aspect. And we might go into that a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I think the script is, is sharp and one of the better scripts of the era and yeah, James Wong Howe, I, I want to bring him up too, because I think he is phenomenal and honestly one of the one of the, if not the greatest, black and white cinematographers. And James Wong Howe was originally from from China and immigrated over to America with his family when he was a young boy and worked from I think started off in the silence working in cinematography and then I think worked up into the seventies. Is what it was. Yeah, he worked. First movie, it looks like it was 1923, and his last film was 1975. So he worked for a long time. Yeah. But yeah, with this one too, because we watched this, I think before, I'd seen it a couple times before, but we watched it before the pandemic happened with a group of friends at my house. And it was funny because a lot of people didn't understand the roles and jobs in the film which I wanted to go into. Yeah. They're just like, I don't know how to relate this to nowadays. Cause as I said, Sydney Fal or Tony Curtis plays Sydney Falca, who's a press agent and JJ Hunsucker played by Burt Lancaster is a gossip columnist and also like radio show host. And there's in the modern sense, there's not really someone like that in that field. They might be more in like a, a new, like a broadcast news type thing, but like, tabloids as we've kind of talked about now because of social media it's become even it's more spread out back in the 50s or the 40s or 30s you had like five to ten people across the country who they only focused on tabloid journalism i think i think the closest that we've gotten in recent years and this might this reference is honestly probably dated at this point it's probably if we have any gen z listeners you might not even get this one but i think I think Perez Hilton is the person who who's gotten the closest to that and in, in being a celebrity in themselves. Yeah. 
in maintaining this this column of celebrity gossip. Yeah, basically think if TMZ was a person, it would it would probably be like kind of this as well. Mm-hmm. And the whole kind of thing in this era is that a press agent who's kind of a publicist is kind of the mm-hmm. idea is that they are trying to get their clients into the columns of these journalists so they can have it kind of helps mold their career like nowadays publicists are more about controlling the image of their clients they're not as as like reaching out and trying to get them and stuff some people are um but in this era this press agents essentially had to provide information for the columnists to get their clients in so a lot of times like i need dirt if you give me this dirt I'll publish that and not publish your client doing this, but I'll publish this like glowing story about your client is kind of the thing. Um, and this movie, like it goes into that, but it's like, it doesn't explain it. If that makes sense. Like it, it very much jumps in the middle of, we're not going to have a scene where let's explain what a press agent, uh, and a tabloid columnist columnist do. Yeah. So history of how this got made. It's, this is a little bit long. I'm going to try to, brief with some of this but it's, there's a lot of stuff going on that i didn't know about um i researched a couple articles uh one's called a movie marked danger by vanity fair and then cinephilia cinephilia and beyond a website that does a lot of these long reads on on films uh that was also a big source so in 1948 freelance writer and press agent ernest lehman wanted to become a novelist and screenwriter Uh, At his job, he felt guilty about being a press agent uh, and providing information for the tabloids, so he decided to write a short story called Hunsucker Takes on the World. He soon quit his job and began turning that short story into a more long-form story, a novella, and it would become a story called Tell Me About It Tomorrow, and it would be published in Cosmopolitan Magazine. Lehman wanted to call it Sweet Smell Success, but the editor of Cosmopolitan at the time didn't like the word smell in a title. (laughs) The story became a yeah. The story became a hot topic in the journalism and entertainment worlds because the character of Hunsucker was a thinly veiled characterization of the famous tabloid columnist and radio host Walter Winchell. I believe we've mentioned Winchell before on this show. I can't remember if I cut it or not, but in the Bob Fosse episode, Winchell was someone who revealed some information about Bob Fosse's wife. Well, didn't we also isn't uh might be completely off in this isn't the character in all about eve somewhat like i think we might have done that too. walter winchell inspired as well yeah, yeah maybe um and then and then fossey was also going to make a movie about walter winchell at one point and it was me with de niro as winchell so winchell was a hmm. big player in this era from the 1930s and 50s at the height of winchell's popularity in the late 1930s 50 million people two-thirds of american adults read winchell's syndicated column and listen to his Sunday night radio broadcast. Wow. Two, two-thirds of American adults. Um, also, the character of Sidney Falco was heavily influenced by Lehman's former boss, Irving Hoffman, who was a press agent that provided information for, for Winchell. Hoffman was very upset with Lehman about the story because he believed that everyone would think it was based on him and Winchell's relationship. Uh, Lehman would say Hoffman and him would not speak for over a year because of this story. And they were good friends. Uh, since it became the, became known the story was based on Winchell, no one in Hollywood wanted to touch this story. Finally, after a long period of no bites as a screenwriter, Lehman caught a lucky break by having someone write a story, I believe in the Hollywood Reporter, 
about a hot young writer that had great ideas for films. And it was Lehman's former boss, Irving Hoffman, who he hadn't spoken to in a year and a half. Because <laughs> Hoffman wanted to get back talking to his friend. He agreed to do a story. So he planned the story in The Hollywood Porter. But Hoffman also let Lehman write the story himself, is what it was. So Lehman writes this glowing review about this New York writer who wants to talk about the New York atmosphere that no one knows about kind of thing. Within two weeks of the story's publication, Lehman received a call from Paramount Studios where he began, he began writing as, an, as a screenwriter and writing certain uh, screenplays. Even with that, however, and this kind of success as a screenwriter now, no one was interested in making Sweet Smell of Success except Burt Lancaster's production company, Hecht Hill Lancaster. This period, this is kind of, he had the company for about 10 years or so. He wanted to make more, basically he wanted to make his starring vehicles, Burt Lancaster did. Lehman apparently hated working for the company. I can't stress that enough. Hated working for the company and originally was going to turn them down because he found them to be vile and womanizing. But after talking with his friend, Patty Chayefsky, who recently worked with him on an adaptation of his teleplay, Marty, Lehman began to one began to reconsider. When the film racked up a bunch of Oscars, Lehman decided to take the offer to adapt his short story because he realized they were the only ones that had the guts to take on Winchell. Uh, Patty Chayefsky later wrote Network is the big thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, but he still thought they were bad people. He describes this scene of apparently they were in a meeting one time and they're discussing who to hire that was going to help them get prostitutes for themselves. They were not, these were not good people. <laughs> like Lancaster, they would not work in the current uh, era that we're in. Uh, Lehman says, I'm ashamed to say that I was a part of this meeting. Uh, there we were scratching around for women. They were the most corrupt group. I really sank into the depths when I decided to work with them. Uh, during the writing of the script, Lehman began having massive stomach problems while working for Lancaster, Hecton Hill. Uh, all of them made fun of him for these problems so that he would, once he would die and be buried, uh, a tree would grow from his stomach area. I don't know. Um, as production <laughs> Good was one, about guys. To, yeah, Real as, funny. As production was about to begin, Lehman went to see the doctor about his stomach and once examined, the doctor told him he would not be going back to work and he would be sent on vacation. Apparently, the stress of working with the company had caused such massive problems like stomach ulcers. When the trio found out, doesn't say which man, I think actually two of them, said when they found out about Lehman, I hope the son of a bitch dies. Yeah. They sound, they sound great. <laughs> they sound very well qualified to make this movie, I do have to say. That's, that's true. Uh, they were layer. They tried to get Patty Chayefsky on board, but they ended up right, hiring famed playwright Clifford Odets to serve as a script doctor for the movie before they go into production. There's more about that later, big time. Um, they were then hired Alexander McKendrick a little while after that, after they bought the rights to Lehman's story. Originally, Lehman was going to direct the movie, but they fired him once they got the funding. Apparently that was a ploy for them to get the rights from him was to promise he would be able to direct and then take it out. Once the money came through, uh, McKendrick had gained notoriety in England by working on working with the famed Ealing studios where he made a lot uh, several comedies without Guinness. The most famous being probably the lady killers mm. in 1955 Ealing studios was bought by BBC and McKendrick realized it was time to get out. So he began entertaining Hollywood offers uh, he turned down offers from Cary Grant, David O. Selznick, and began entertaining an offer from 
Hecht, Hill, and Lancaster for a movie called The Devil's Disciple, this like Revolutionary War picture. Uh, the funding would fall through, through for that, and he would be hired for Sweet Smell of Success. While Lehman was doing constant rewrites of the script during the act, before he get, went to the hospital, Lancaster realized he wanted to play J.J. Hunsecker. That was not the intention when they bought the rights. But Lancaster believed it would be a major break for him because, as I said, he was known for playing these hero characters, these swashbucklers, like in the movie called The Crimson Pirate. When Tony Curtis found out about the project, he begged Lancaster to cast him as Sidney Falco. Curtis was also seen as this swashbuckling heartthrob, and he had recently starred in a film called uh, Trapeze with Lancaster. Curtis believed this was the part he was meant to play, even though his agents told him it would ruin his career as an actor. Then he was finally hired. And that's how our main players got together. Yeah, this is a this this movie really is a big risk for both of these guys. Yeah, I think for all of them, it's it's like Curtis. Yeah, Curtis was like, I mean, it's like how to put it in context of like picture like just a teen, like a a 20s, like heartthrob who makes family films making this kind of sleazy character is what it is. Yeah, and and I, I do think we've we've kind of gotten to a point where Hollywood celebrates that kind of turn. They do. But but it wasn't as celebrated back then. It was if you are if you're a hero, you you stay a hero. It's almost like it's almost like watching like sitcom television in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like I want to see the same. I they're not really there to see characters. They're to see personas and celebrities and actors and actresses. Um, so they don't want to see Curtis play a bad guy. They don't want to yeah. see Lancaster play a bad guy. They want to see them swinging around on ropes and fighting with people and getting the love of their life at the end of the movie and the end and this is not that movie (laughs) by any shape or form not at all so let's dive into favorite scenes here so what are some of your favorite scenes this movie give me your give me one first um well i let's okay my favorite like thread of the film i think is the cigarette girl kind of subplot yeah and i think every scene involving that subplot is fantastic yeah like you could like pull that and make a make like a short out of it and it would be incredible um but it's you know it's this uh when when falco's trying to figure out how to assassinate this this guitar player's character he has a friend who's a cigarette girl in a club and she tells him that this other journalist has had had her over to had yeah had her over to his house and and got things got weird yeah and so falco decides he's going to blackmail that other journalist into running a blind item is what they call it yeah that says hey this guitarist is smoking the doobies yeah and he's a communist that was the other thing he was a communist and he was he was smoking marijuana everyone knows if you smoke a doobie you become a communist that's that's common knowledge um but that that there's so many good scenes with that and then and but the the scene when he confronts the journalist is amazing because he he comes to him at the table and his wife's there and he's like he's trying to like do be be smooth in the way that he's blackmailing <laughs> the guy and the journalist like catches on and, and like turns to his wife and is like he's trying to blackmail me right now <laughs> well it's a great yeah. turn it's a really yeah. great turn we're like I think in any other movie that journalist just crumbles and just mm-hmm. like, okay, I'll do it. 
but it becomes like, no, you're blackmailing me. Okay, here's what happened, is what he ends yeah. up like telling he, his he wife. He confesses everything to his wife, and then his wife says, uh, this is the this is the first clean thing you've done in years or something yeah, like that. It's, it's kind of it's, yeah it's 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 a weird turn but no i love it's the part when like because the, the 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 his wife is playing like a do the crossword puzzle no 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 it's doing um she's trying to pick horses horse, for the races. horse horse races yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but she's wearing the newspaper and 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 she's like oh what's your name he's like oh sydney falco he's like oh there's a there's a horse with that name maybe i should go with that one she's like trying to find like what name clicks and sydney falco goes is there a, a name like a cigarette girl on that on that paper or something? Like it's just very like a slides the, the the blind item to the journalist. Yeah, it's just you know throughout this movie you just continue to see over and over again how pathetic <laughs> Falco is. He really and is. This, this is one of those that he he's like he's got this whole plan. Yeah, he's trying to be as smooth as possible. He's trying to do he's trying to pull off something that JJ would be able to pull off and it just like blows up in his face sorry laurie i can't let this man blackmail me blackmail wants me to print a dirty little smear item in exchange for keeping his mouth shut about what foolishly laurie i I hope you'll understand it the cigarette girl i i was kidding around with the girl i mean I was kidding. She took it seriously. It's a case of bad judgment, bad taste. I'm just sorry, that's all. And your friend, Hunsek. You tell him for me he's a disgrace to his profession. Never mind about my, my bilious private life. I run a decent, responsible column. That's the way it stays. Your man prints anything. Use any spice to pepper up his daily garbage. You tell him I said so. Tell him that, like yourself, he's got the scruples of a guinea pig and the morals of a gangster. What do I do now? Whistle stars and stripes forever? What you do now, Mr. Falco, is crow like a hen. You have just laid an egg. Leo, this is the first clean thing I've seen you do in years. In terms of like, the morality tale with this is that Falco really is reaching low. He's going low every other time. He's getting lower and lower every time he does something. Mm-hmm. It's how far will he go to climb the ladder? And and then like the times when he's like, I'm done with this. I'm getting out. This new offer kind of comes in. But also it's you also wonder there's a scene that happens where like him and JJ are fighting and he's like, I'm out of this. There's no way you're going to get me unless you like give me your own, give me my own column. Falco's always thinking ahead, even though he's failing in a lot of things, he's still always thinking ahead of what's his next step. Mm-hmm. And so like in that scene, I wonder, and even in, even in the scene with the, um, with the journalist where he's trying to blackmail him, I always wondered, was that the ploy to get the other guy to listen to it? Cause that's the other thing is that he does the whole blackmail thing. It doesn't work. And then this other journalist who's there, hears it and wants to know what the item is. And mm-hmm. Falco like, kind of just commits to it like he literally uses the same wording that the journalist uses against him to describe jj to that other journalist yeah curtis has that falco's always thinking ahead in some way there's always a plan uh the plan might not always work (laughs) but he always has a plan he's always he's constantly moving forward as kind of his character Mm -hmm. like curtis never really never really um 
relaxes, if that makes sense. He's always yeah. like fidgeting of some kind. So always kind of on the move. But oh, yes, that whole kind of sequence of the cigarette girl. And then even the scene after when it's the uh, um, when they're in Falco's office and he's kind of like, again, setting up the cigarette girl to have sex with this other journalist. Yeah, that that's the scene for me where you're just like, oh, there's there's no hope left for Sydney. Um, he, he basically pimps her out for his own gain. And and she's 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 fantastic, that actress. But they they have this like fight where she he lures her to his apartment making her think that, that they're going to spend the night together and then he's just set up this other guy he's going to pimp her out to and she like stands up to him and is like yeah. i don't know who you think i am and sydney's like you got to do this for your kid the, the money's going to come from it yeah he's like don't you have a kid in the, in the army or it's or in the military, military school military yeah. school and she's just like okay well and this is whole and the other thing with that too is the the journalist is like thinks he knows where he's like he's seen her before and he's like where have i seen you and he keeps like naming off cities part, it's it's heartbreaking it's when heartbreaking. she like finally resigns herself to do it and she comes out the door and he's like cuba i know you from cuba and she's just like no no you don't palm springs two years ago and you're like oh god because yep. you thought he was just this guy was just like uh it, it didn't like you just thought he was doing this like to like oh i think i know you from somewhere as like a kind of flirtatious thing and then it turns around, actually, they did hook up once before, two years before. And it does not sound like it was a good experience. Yeah, that scene is that scene is real. I don't know if slimy is the right word, but like... No, yeah, slimy is the right you, word. I don't think you ever feel the right way, the same way about Sydney after that scene. I think that's, that's really one of the, the turning points in the movie. Don't you know who that man is? Yeah. Otis Elwell, the columnist. He's a perfect stranger to me. So take five minutes. Get acquainted. He's an important man. He's lonely. Don't be dumb. What do you want all of a sudden? Lady Cadiver? Where's my other shoe? What kind of an act is this? Don't you think I have any feelings? What am I? A bowl of fruit? A tangerine that peels in a minute? I beg your pardon. How do you like this? I turned myself inside out to do you a favor, now I'm the heavy. Here's your shoe. There's your coat. And there's the door. Another fantastic scene is when, when JJ's introduced. Yep. And they almost introduce him like a like a gossip columnist, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> you know, every every iteration of like a Sherlock Holmes has that scene when they they're having a conversation with someone and then they're immediately like, I, I know everything about you. I read you when you came in the room. And yeah, that's yeah. The, they have that scene where, where JJ's Sydney comes in and JJ's sitting with a Senator and this actress and her yeah. agent. Yeah. And they're just kind of beating around the bush until JJ's finally like, listen, I know exactly what's going on here. And they do that great camera move where it's like over his shoulder and it's, uh -huh. it's like whip panning to each person as he talked, like you're looking from his point of view and he's like setting his, like a robot like setting his sights on each person to like tear them down the best way possible burt lancaster could have been a good terminator that's all i have to say he probably could have <laughs> been a good terminator yeah it's it's the when he's like i know what's happening here he you're using him to cover up for you and her basically because the mm -hmm. whole thing is like the senator's like oh here's my friend this young actress and what it is that oh no this is his lover this is his mistress and you know so there's so much of this movie especially in the modern era smacks of what we now know about 
yeah the workings in hollywood and that one especially is like you know the the whole story with the the president of of warner um mm-hmm. and warner no jack warner I'm talking. I'm talking about like five years ago. I'm not talking about Golden Age. Oh, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Okay. I'm I'm talking about you know the whole the whole scandal that brought down Warner and and uh, oh what's his face Brett. Um, oh Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner. Yeah. Yeah. Very relevant for today. This this movie. Now come JJ, that's a little too harsh. Anyone seems fair game for you tonight. This man is not for you, Harvey. And you shouldn't be seen in public with them, because that's another part of a press agent's life. They dig up scandal about prominent people and shovel it thin among columnists who give them space. There seems to be some illusion here that escapes me. We're friends, Harvey. We go as far back as when you were a fresh kid congressman, don't we? Why is it that everything you say sounds like a threat? Maybe it's a mannerism, because I don't threaten friends. But why furnish your enemies with ammunition? You're a family man, Harvey, and someday, God willing, you may want to be president. And here you are, out in the open, where any hep person knows that this one is toting that one around for you. Other scenes I like, too, with with, with Curtis, because Curtis is kind of the... I think Lancaster gets top billing because he's the bigger star, but it's really... I mean, it's Tony Curtis's film here. Yeah, um, yeah if, if, if we see the film through anyone's eyes, it's, it's Falco's. It's Falco, yeah. Uh, I think the favorite scene or two favorite scenes in mine. It's it's Falco's interplay with secretaries. Uh, so the first one with his secretary, when at the beginning where it kind of sets up Falco's ambition, essentially where he wants to he he wants to climb the golden ladder of success. I think is what he says, and he's like no more like like uh rack up the balls boy or whatever. Like he, he wants to be known and seen and essentially feared probably as well fear and respected and it's a good mm-hmm. kind of interplay because his secretary knows who he was before and she's seeing him go down this dark path yeah i think i'm a hero well i'm no hero i'm nice to people where it pays me to be nice look i do it enough on the outside so don't expect me to do it in my own office i'm gonna bind right now with Hunsicker. Sydney, maybe i'm done but why does Mr. Hunsaker want to squeeze your livelihood away? What do you stand for that kind of treatment for? He's punishing me. His kid sister's having a romance with some guitar player. He asked me to break it up. I thought I did, but maybe I didn't. Now I gotta go find out. And Hunsick is the golden ladder to the places I want to get. Sydney, you make a living. Where do you want to get? We up high, Sam, where it's always balmy. Where no one snaps his fingers and says, hey, shrimp, rack the balls. Or, hey, Mouse, Mouse, go out and buy me a pack of butts. I don't want tips from the kitty. I'm in the big game with the big players. My experience, I can give you in a nutshell, and I didn't dream it in a dream either. Dog eat dog. In brief, from now on, the best of everything is good enough for me. Sydney, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. It, it's just that it makes me feel bad when Mr. Hunsdenker hurts you. And... Every dog will have his day. Uh, the last thing for me with favorite scenes the entire sequence at JJ's radio show where like, it's the kind of the big confrontation of Sydney's plan coming into action. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, basically Sydney's plan of the story um, about the, his, about JJ's sister's boyfriend who's proposed to him, proposed to her. Um, Sydney's plan of the story about him being a communist uh, uh, doobie uh, roller. And, um, and he's been fired from his job. 
and Sydney kind of has this moment where he tells he basically tells Lancaster the plan. He's like, "Look, just trust me. I know what I'm doing." And it's that great line where Lancaster is like, "You're a cookie full of arsenic," is what he says to him. Mm-hmm. But it sets up the kind of like big conversation where like Lancaster takes on the the boyfriend. And they're trying to basically paint the boyfriend as this like flawed and and corrupt person for the sister is what it is. We got that boy coming over here today. If I can trust my eyes, and I think I can, Susie knows all about your dirty work. Can't hurt. Can't hurt. I had to get that boy's job back. Look, JJ. We can tie this off in a one neat bundle, address it to the dumps, to oblivion. We're doing great, but please do it my way. I've cased this kid. I know his ins and outs. He's full of juice and vinegar, just waiting for a big shot like you to put on the squeeze. You got the boy's job back, okay. But he's not gonna accept your favor. The manager, yeah, but not that boy. What has this boy got that Susie likes? Integrity, acute, like indigestion. What does this mean? Integrity. A pocket full of firecrackers. Waiting for a match. You know, it's a new wrinkle. To tell you the truth, I never thought I'd make a killing on some guy's integrity. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. So on set life, they initially began shooting in Los Angeles in 1956 because they weren't able to shoot some of the interiors in New York City. So they had to remake the New York clubs to scale because they were based on actual clubs in New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, The clubs had movable walls so that director James Wong Howe could light the set. They also built the club sets, specifically the Club 21, which is where you see JJ's intro. Uh, They built the club two feet off the ground so that he could light the smoke of the room from a low angle, like shooting up from the floor is what it was. Mm. Um, After the interiors were completed, the production moved to New York City in the winter of 1956. So it looks cold because it was cold. (laughs) um to shoot many exteriors and other interiors i think they actually shoot where jj lives um the long hallway where you kind of see a couple times or whatever i think when when like uh the boyfriend's leaving i think uh, marty is leaving uh susan susie the the sister it's that long hallway that's the hallway from taxi driver when de niro calls up uh uh sybil shepherd you know that Mm -hmm. kind of like the kind of uh dolly away to where you hear de niro talking you see a long hallway it's the same yep. set or same place uh while in los angeles they had clifford odette's rewrite the script while on set uh when they they decided to take a train ride from la to new york and he was going to rewrite the entire script on the train ride uh by the time they got to chicago he had not started right re- rewriting the script <laughs> and he and then he became worried because clifford odette's had kind of left new york at one point and was kind of was kind of more of a leftist in terms of political thing a political stance but i think he might have named names in the house of un-americans committee so he was afraid Mm. to go back to new york because like all of his friends like lee strasberg and the actor studio were all gonna like basically like crucify him is what they were kind of he was worried about um but they get new york there's still no completed script Director Alexander McKendrick said, one of the most frightening experiences of my life was starting to shoot in the middle of Times Square at rush hour with an incomplete script. (laughs) Odette's would spend day and night reworking the script, adding most of the sharp dialogue and also restructuring a lot of the scenes in the script. 
Uh, Tony Curtis once said he went to visit Odette's at their hotel to get dinner, but he found the producers had locked Odette's in his hotel room until he finished the scenes that, he was, <laughs> that were needed. Uh, McKendrick said there was never, never a final shooting script for the movie. It was all still being revised, even on the last day of principal photography. It was a shamble. It was, it was a shamble of a document. Production had, had set Odette's up with a makeshift desk inside the prop truck. Curtis said that it would be three in the morning one night when he was walking between, walking by between a shot, when he heard the ticking of the typewriter, he entered the prop truck to see Odette's huddled up in his overcoat typing away. Odette's called him over to read what he was writing uh, because he said, you have two more days left of shooting. I have to get the scene right. And he lets Curtis read the scene. And it's the famous scene where he says the cat's in the bag and the bag's in the river. Mm-hmm. So he wrote that like the day of essentially. <laughs> this sounds like this sounds like Mank to Odette. It does. Odette's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in addition to all the behind the scenes stresses for the filmmakers, shooting on location in New York City was made more difficult by large crowds of groupies. For then heartthrob Tony Curtis, yeah. who would show up and try to break through the barricades to get near him. I'm sure during filming too, Tony Curtis was like, why'd they have to write into the script that my character purposely doesn't wear a coat? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? He said, everyone can see me. Um, uh, so apparently it was a grueling set to work on because of all the dominating personalities. Yeah. Uh, Lancaster and his producing partners clashed with McKendrick constantly on set. Lancaster would apparently give direction to other actors on the set, dif- differing from McKendrick's direction. Um, Curtis recalls how McKendrick insists on absolute silence on set or he wouldn't shoot the scene. Even if it was everything, even if everything went perfectly, Curtis said he would still want to reshoot in the middle of the scene. He'd yell, shut up. Everyone tiptoed around him on set. Burt would get mad because they couldn't afford all the reshooting because Burt was a producer. Uh, McKendrick, in fact, did an, an epic number of takes of the scene in which Hunsucker watches a drunk being bounced from a nightclub. They did it over and over and over again, going all night. And then McKendrick said, print takes one and two. <laughs> Speaking of Mank, that's some, that's some David Fincher, that's David Fincher stuff, stuff right there. Um, Elmer Bernstein, who composed the film's uh, powerful like, the jazzy score, um, said the combination of people in that movie, Hecht, Lancaster, Odets, was a snake pit. There was a cultural different distance between Burt and Sandy, that's Alexander McKendrick. It was Sandy's heartbeat at a different rate. Uh, Bert was really scary, Bernstein recalled. He was a dangerous guy. He had a short fuse. He was very physical. You thought you might get punched out. It was a miracle that Sandy finished that film. In fact, I think that film is what finished Sandy. Lancaster would later admit with a grin that McKendrick considered him the epitome of evil. Uh, they had a massive debate once the film was in post-production uh, about the ending. Mm-hmm. Lancaster wanted the ending to be on Falco being beaten up while McKendrick wanted to end on Susie walking away from her brother at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they played it in like a screening room or something and McKendrick had shot it both ways and edited it both ways. And there was massive like McKendrick had to basically edit a cut without Lancaster knowing so he could include that ending and when Lancaster's ending did not work, he showed his ending and it went well at the studios. So yeah, a lot of onset drama. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. But don't worry, there's more drama afterwards. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> uh, before the film was released, it was given a preview screening and the audiences hated it. Tony Curtis fans were expecting him to play one of his typical nice guy roles. And instead, we're presented with the scheming Sidney Falco. 
McKendrick remembered seeing audience members curling up, crossing their arms and legs, recoiling from the screen in disgust. (laughs) Burt Lancaster fans were not thrilled with their aisle either, finding the film too static and talky. One reviewer wrote on the preview card, don't touch a foot of this film, just burn the whole thing. Uh, Because because Lancaster and Curse were known for such good guy roles, uh, one film executive marveled the film seemed to have been made almost in defiance of the box office end quote it, it is and, and <laughs> I, I have to say it is it is an unpleasant film it is and and you just didn't do that no in the 50s no you can make i mean there there were villains there were films centered around villains but you just didn't really make a movie that was unpleasant to watch that, that was made that, you feel yeah. bad yeah throughout with such that big stars and such a romantic location as New York City. I mean, you've seen it before with like kind of noir films and these kind of B movies, but not this like A picture with these huge stars. It's very different. Okay. Uh, the Oh yeah. The film premiered on June 27th, 1957 in New York City and Times Square. Across the street at the premiere was Walter Winchell as he watched the crowd, making sure the film that, that, ins- that was inspired by him would fail. He had people walking around trying to find out how they liked the film while also trying to have people feed opinions into the, into the crowd about it being terrible. This really is Susan Kane. <laughs> it really is. Um, the film, however, received great pr- critical praise for every aspect of the film, making several top 10 lists the year, but that would not help the box office. On a $3.0 million budget, the film only made $2.25 million. I think at one point I read this, the original budget was $600,000 and it went to 3.4 allegedly. Um, after the film was after the film, McKendrick was to make again, the devil's disciple, which starred Burt Lancaster, but he was fired two weeks in because Lancaster believed he was waiting there. He was wasting their time and money like he did on sweet smell success. Uh, McKendrick would only make a few more films before quitting filmmaking in 1967 with a film called Don't Make Waves, starring Tony Curtis. He would later serve as the dean of the film school at Cal Arts and a teacher there where he served as a mentor for various directors, specifically a big mentor to James Mangold, director of Logan and Ford vs. Ferrari. Uh, Once the film was finished, uh, writer Ernest Lehman was not fully happy with the finished product. Um, Burt Lancaster blamed him, (laughs) saying that if he never would have left the film would have been a success. Uh, Lehman, however, would have a very successful career after Sweet Smell like Success, writing the screenplays for North by Northwest. That's a good one. West Side Story. That's that's another pretty good one. The Sound of Music. That's that's a pretty good one. And Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which he also produced. That's Those are some <laughs> solid, solid movies, gotta say. Solid follow-ups. Uh, Clifford Odets, however, would, would only write two more movies, before passing away in 1963, six years later, at the age of 57. His last film was the 1964, 1961 film, Wild in the Country, starring Elvis Presley. It was an Elvis Presley movie. Mm. Uh, and within a few years, the Hecht Hill Lancaster production company would dissolve. I think the it was Harold Heck and Burt Lancaster hated each other. And James Hill was kind of the buffer. And apparently they just... Because Hecht apparently hated Hill... And Hecht was involved in Sweet Smell Success at first, and then Hill jumped in, and Hecht's like, I hate this guy. I hope this movie fails. And it did fail, so he blamed James Hill for the failure of the movie. 
so yeah, I think 62 was the last year, the last one they released uh, under the name. Or 60 was the last film they released. So not long after, three years later. It, so I think if we've discovered anything from the story of, of this film is that there might be a reason that this movie really rings true. Because <laughs> it feels like everyone, I mean, a, a lot of the people that were making it, I'd say the producers, because I, I don't think McKendrick or, or Hal or, or uh, even the writers were toxic, but it sounds like Hecht and Lancaster specifically were very toxic individuals. Mm-hmm. who were both very uh Lancaster specifically being this alpha male who wanted to control everything it seems like and McKendrick who's more of an artist and wants to direct it his way yeah yeah it's a crazy and and, and, there, and there's more of the story that I just I don't we have no time to go into <laughs> <laughs> again if you want to find out more about it, you can go read the articles I mentioned uh one by cinephilia and beyond sweet smell success a visceral and vicious depiction of the evil that power hungry men do. And then the Vanity Fair article, a movie marked danger. Um, so Thomas, what worked about this movie? Um, well, I mean, like I just said, this movie nails these characters in this atmosphere. And, and apparently it's, it was based on experience, but um, yeah, it's, it's like, I've brought it up again and again, movies like this just weren't made at this period. And this movie goes all out and it makes you feel gross. It makes you feel, slimy and that's that's such a feat for this time period you know another another journalism movie another kind of tabloid movie that we didn't bring up that does very different in like pace and style but like similar feelings is a uh, nightcrawler yeah like i thought about that too this is just it gives it gives you like the 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 heebie-jeebies yeah and I think some, I don't know if they were, but I, I feel like some people were turned off by Gyllenhaal in that role because of like, he was, I mean, he had been doing other roles before then, but like for a while he was seen as kind of this like heartthrob in some way by many people. Mm-hmm. And Gyllenhaal is kind of a guy who's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to go off and do this thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a good comparison. Also, I forgot to say with Curtis, uh, this would be the breakout of his career. And essentially all of his roles that you know him from, like some like it hot, the defiant ones, which was not for an Oscar for. And I think, uh, and Boston Strangler, Spartacus, they all came after this movie. So it was the breakout film mm-hmm. that Curtis went. I think Curtis is, is phenomenal in the movie. And I think it's his best performance, honestly, that I've seen him do. I think the script is great. I think the dialogue, it might be a little too, I don't know, dated for some, I don't know. It's a, it's very sharp, but there's a lot of lines where I wonder like, a. If they came from this movie, that have come into the public consciousness, or if it was before then, like when uh, Lancaster says, like, don't kid a kidder. It's been mm-hmm. that I hear a lot nowadays from people. Um, there's a few lines that Lancaster says that feels like are very modern. It's a very, it's still, even though there, some stuff feels dated, it's still a very modern script. Um, and then James Wong Howe, I think cinematography is, is gorgeous. Yeah. I, I, I said before, I think he is, probably the greatest if or one of the greatest the greatest uh black and white cinematographers uh i tell people if you if you're gonna shoot a black and white film if it's a short film that you're making if you're like a young filmmaker if you're want to shoot a big black and white film like make watch the works of james wong Howe. i think he really mastered how to shoot for black and white mm-hmm. also how about the score how do you feel about the score oh it's great yeah i i, I kind of love that the 
the duality of this movie and that like these these people are all believing in like the dangers of jazz yeah and then it's it's set to jazz yeah it's because so right around the time like jazz is really picking up in the like may more in the like, jazz is beginning to change if that makes sense like mm. uh and also like i think they, i think i read how uh it was around like the beatnik generation type type as well it's about to break out so it's a much more like improvisational type jazz in a way that's happening that's that's happening in the uh in the score um and what's about to kind of break out in the culture did anything not work there's something about the pacing that throws me off every time i watch this and i'm not sure how i would fix it but i do think it it lulls a little bit i think maybe it's just because there's so many attempts to frame this kid that's fair that it, it there's a part where it, where I feel like it starts to lose a little bit of energy and the camera the camera's working overtime and the actors are working overtime to, and, the, and the music are all working to keep that energy up but yeah. but I feel from like a storytelling standpoint mm-hmm. it does kind of lose a little bit of that energy and like the towards the end of the second act yeah that's fair I think there's some spots in there that yeah could could need some cleaning up a little bit um how do you how do you feel about the last like 10 minutes of the movie like the, i mean the ending yeah it gets a little melodramatic i it think does, yeah. if it feels the the least modern you know the the slapping him around which is great which is uh but you know the the suicide attempt it's it's all because i think because it's all this whole movie is about like the drama that's that's under the surface and all these people like pretending to be friends even though they hate each other and so to see it all kind of bubble up to a head in the last 10 minutes does is is a little jarring it 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 becomes a little bit more classical hollywood yeah there at the end i agree and i I, because i feel like too like sydney sydney's been like a uh a scheming kind of sleaze the entire movie but when the boyfriend gets beat up he has some form of guilt Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the morality tale that he has some form of guilt of what he's done so it kind of doesn't make sense that he kind of becomes so hateful towards Susie in the very next scene if that makes sense Mm -hmm. he's like monologuing about like how like she's terrible how like if she killed herself i can't remember what it was but it was like there's a lot of stuff where i just go after this kind of guilt-ridden scene he kind of becomes a little bit of a different character mm. and so it kind of takes away a little bit from the tragic ending that he he doesn't get killed but like he has a tragic ending in the end and it kind of takes away from that that fall yeah. I think I wonder what happens if you kind of cut out some of those speeches, what, what that does. Um, because then it's like when he's getting, when he's getting framed by Bert, kind of being framed by Burt Lancaster, you're kind of just like, good for him. Like, it's like he kind of, I mean, he deserves it. He deserved it before, but like, because of how he talks to Susie kind of unprompted, mm-hmm. it's, he deserves what he gets in a way. Yeah. Um, but I think it's more tragic if like he actually feels guilty, tries to stop her, but then something there's something misinterpreted between him and JJ that prompts that. Yeah. Um, and how do you feel about Susie? Actress and as the character. Um, you know, I haven't given her a whole lot of thought. Okay. That's fine. Uh, 
I think she's just kind of a plot point. She is. She is. Um, as far as performances go, she's on the lower the lower end of the. She has, yeah, she doesn't have much to do. Yeah. Alternate universe cast. Mm-hmm. People who were cons- so only person I guess I can find that was considered for Sydney was Tony Curtis. Okay. But there were two people who were talked about for J.J. Hunsecker. I'll say this one first. Ernest Lehman, when he came on board, when he was going to direct and write and was discussed within the producers, wanted Orson Welles to play J.J. Mm. He apparently had come out of retired because he had kind of retired for acting for a brief time. It was in Europe, I believe. And he was coming back to Hollywood. I think Touch of Evil was happening or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. But he'd come back to Hollywood to take some acting roles to fund his uh his next movie is what it was but they decided against it and the other person apparently discussed good old blue eyes himself frank sinatra for the role of jj mm. <laughs> orson wells i'd be interested to see i don't know about sinatra i don't yeah. think sinatra could have done it um but wells could have been very interesting because wells knows that world very well yeah, I mean, like we like we've been saying, it's the the whole process is very similar to what he went through with William Randolph Hearst and and Citizen Kane. Yeah, how he got torn apart from it because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, film facts: the role of Susie Hunsecker, played by Susan Harrison. She was 18 years old from the Bronx with no professional experience. Oh. That's why I asked about her earlier. Uh, she had been a waitress at the Limelight, a Greenwich Village coffee house, and a model in the Garment District. Besides a few TV appearances and one other film, Harrison never acted past 1961. The two films, and then she was like an, an appearance in like an Alfred Hitchcock hour. Alfred Hitchcock presents mm-hmm. show. Um, as parallels to real life in this film, Walter Winchell was so obsessive about his daughter's love life that he had her institutionalized as being emotionally unstable and with the help of the FBI director, J Edgar Hoover had forced her lover to leave the country. Wow. (laughs) That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. So, and so that's the kind of whole like inspiration behind the whole breaking up the, the sister and boyfriend. Yeah. Thing relationship, a complete, a complete score for the film was made by, I think two of the jazz musicians in, in Marty's band. Mm-hmm. but it was deemed too esoteric from United Artist, and so they brought in Elmer Bernstein to create a whole new score. In 2002, the film was adapted into a Broadway musical. Can you guess who starred JJ and who starred Sydney? 2002? Yeah. Oh, I'm trying to use my very limited Broadway musical knowledge. Um, let, me, let, let me try to, well, well I'll, let me try to give you some hints here. Uh, one of the guys is in another journalism movie. He's not a big part. Well, he is one of the big characters, but he's in another journalism movie that came oh, out. Oh, uh, uh, Shrek. I can't think of what his name is. He's got a three, a three, word, a three name. Brian, name. Brian Darcy James. Yes, Brian Darcy James. He he was Shrek on in Shrek well, the Musical. Yeah, he plays Sydney. Okay. Uh, and the guy who plays JJ, Oscar-nominated os- actor, big TV actor as well. He was in a, a comedy in the 90s, but then gained fame by playing a serial killer on a TV show and won some won some awards that way. Serial killer on a TV show. Oh, John Lithgow. John Lithgow as JJ. Uh, the musical was a commercial failure. Nobody wanted to see a feel good musical about yeah, I think Mar- how terrible gossip column was. Yeah, Marvin Hamlish did the, like, was, was one of the people involved in the creation of it. 
Uh, commercial failure only ran for 109 performances. It was it was also a critical failure, but it still received seven Tony nominations. I, that's the thing about the Tony sometimes. It's like if you mm-hmm. can, <laughs> if there's not a lot of new stuff, you can kind of win one. Lithgow won for best actor in a musical, though. Only win for the movie. Um, the film is a favorite of many writer filmmakers and writers, including Martin Scorsese, Barry Levinson, and Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, Barry Levinson in Diner actually has a character that only speaks lines from the film. Really? Yes. I remember it now because it's like it's like it's like a background character, but he pops up occasionally. Uh, one of the musical refrains from Elmer Bernstein's score was used note for note in Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. And then last note I have for the second and third episode of Breaking Bad, the title of the episodes are The Cats in the Bag, Episode 2. In episode three and the bags in the river. Wow. Because Vince Gilligan sets his favorite Sweet Smell Success is his favorite movie of all time. That means you've got a plan. Can you deliver? Tonight. Before you go to bed. Cats in a bag and the bags in a river. Don't be a two-time loser, Sydney. The penalty could be severe. All right. Story questions. My my story question opens up a whole other can of worms but okay let's I think do this it. is a place uh from from a reading from a queer theory reading mm-hmm. in which you look into films from this era and see if they were queer coded in their dialogue and in their themes uh are jj and sydney sleeping together yeah i wondered that too there's there's some weird stuff with jj in terms of like romantic stuff it feels like in this movie yeah well he's he's a confirmed bachelor which is a which was a a term that was used back then for someone who lived with their mother or their sister and and never really had any female interests um david thompson who's a a film writer published a book in uh, recently like 2019 he published a book called sleeping with strangers how the movies shape desire about whether or not this film is is kind of queer coded and he says you know listen the movie is is sexual yes no matter what yes that's true and and the the thing with queer theory is you you know you can go back and say burt lancaster you know produced this movie and he none of these guys who who wrote it or produced it would have put this in intentionally but yeah it doesn't always have to be intentional but what what thompson ultimately comes to in this in his essay is you could not remake this movie without having to yeah consider like if you were to remake this movie you would have to consider there being some sort of sexual relationship between these two men yeah no i would agree there's it, a the, i mean even just the line about like you're you're a cookie filled with arsenic and i'm gonna take a bite out yeah of i won't take a, yeah, a bite out of you that yeah. is a rock <laughs> there's a there's a, the the there's the the scene in that we, we we talked about the scene when they they introduced jj with that young actress where she says something to Sydney. She's like, you must be an actor. You're so pretty. And, and uh, JJ's like, Oh yeah, he's pretty. And it's, and, you know, talking, talking about what was going on in Hollywood at that time, the, the relationship between the two of them, this kind of like dominant and submissive relationship really reminds me of what we've started to hear. And I'm, this is still gossip. None of this is confirmed, but in the past couple of years started to hear about the, uh, the relationship between, uh, Marlon Brando and James Dean. Yeah, yeah. which sounds very similar to <laughs> to this to the, the 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 kind of power dynamic that's going on here. Yeah, I know Odette's. I read 
because he was such good friends with Curtis, he would make fun of him for being so handsome. So that's why he added a bunch. There's more lines too about like Curtis's looks, about Sydney's looks, about his eyes. And it's, I think, like just like this skin, his face or whatever. Someone says something about his eyelashes at some point. Eyelashes. Yeah. Cigarette girl. Cigarette girl calls him eyelashes is what it is. Yes. That was it. Thank you. Um, yeah, there's definitely JJ specifically. And because Sydney is such a, he'll do anything. I'm not saying that like, so there, there's some sort of like, is there, is he in a relationship with JJ as part of a ploy to like get more stuff in the column? And that's mm-hmm. why he's more hurt when JJ's not doing it. I mean, you could go into that. That's, that's a whole, like, they probably weren't playing it that way, but it has, it comes off that way. But yeah. I, I think Thompson Thompson's essay is really interesting, but that when I got to the point, cause he kind of dances ar- around it throughout the movie and he talks yeah. or, throughout the essay and he talks about, you know, a lot of these, these queer theory films, you can go back and, and kind of read that someone did it on purpose. And he said, this is a really tough one. If you go back and study the history that, that it's not there necessarily. Yeah. But, but he, he says towards the end of the essay, you know, his thing about you could not remake this movie without considering that. And I think that's a, yeah, yeah. that's a great point. Uh, my one question is about the relationship between JJ and Susie. Uh, does JJ is JJ attracted to his sister? Because there's a I mean, weird. Here's the thing, yeah, here's the thing too with with the queer theory reading is a lot of times in that period, you know, homosexuality was just lumped in with all forms of, you know, quote unquote sexual deviousness. Uh, you know, a movie that's that's. One of the one of the main texts within a, the reading of queer theory in, in classical Hollywood is rope, which is literally yeah. just like if you're gay, you're you're a murderer. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's it's going too far to say that that the the you know the deep subtext at this time would assume like if you're gay, you're also incestuous. Like I I I think that that could be definitely something that's coded in here. Yeah, because because you have the moments of like, oh, we're gonna be going off because it's like the whole thing is that JJ is gonna break up Susie and her boyfriend, and they're gonna go off for three months on a vacation together. Mm-hmm. Like yep. it's very. Yeah, I'm it's, gonna get her away from that boy, and then she and I are going off to Europe together, and we're only gonna be months. stuck with each other. Yeah, that's and that's yeah, that's not a sibling thing to me, especially at the no. especially at this point, like with because she doesn't. I mean, she says she doesn't hate him, but because he's been so cruel to her. I mean that would not be a fun vacation, but yeah, he's he yeah. There's just a he's has an obsession around his sister to where it's it's unhealthy. Any other questions? Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, awards. The Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress, limited scenes, kills it. Who do you have? Does uh. Let me get my let me pull my IMDb up. Does Barbara Nichols count how many scenes? She does. does she, she does. She counts for this one. Okay. Yeah, she does. I'm giving it to her 100. percent The, the scene in Sydney. She she plays the cigarette girl. The scene in Sydney's office is heartbreaking. I think that's like when she like resigns herself to like yeah. I'm I'm stuck here. I have to do this. Yeah, her character name her character name is Rita. Yeah, she she's phenomenal. I think she for the amount I think she's in three or four scenes. And she she's able to kind of really own that uh, that character. She did she did a number of movies. Weirdly, 
I mentioned Bob Fosse earlier. She was in several. She was in uh, the Pajama Game movie, which was choreographed by Bob Fosse. Mm-hmm. And she was also in Pal Joey, which I don't think Fosse did anything for, but that was his favorite role. So she was kind of in these couple, a same year as Sweet Smoke Success, by the way, um, that she did. She did a lot of stuff. She did a, looks like she worked for most of the 50s and 60s. Did a lot of TV. A lot of TV, it looks like. So, yeah, I would agree. With, I would go with Barbara Nichols as well. I think she, uh, oh man, she died when she was 47. That's sad. Apparently, oh man, she died, died of uh, liver failure due to complications of a damaged spleen and liver reportedly sustained in separate automobile accidents many years earlier. Wow. 1976, 47. But no, she, she is great in this role. Very memorable. I think she, she has a vulnerability about her that definitely feels like a, a little bit of a light in this dark movie is mm-hmm. kind of how I yeah. feel. She's she she feels like one of the only people who is somewhat innocent, which is why that scene in, in uh Sydney's apartment is it makes it so much worse. Sydney, I don't do this sort of thing. What sort of thing? This sort of thing. You need him for a favor, don't you? Well, so do I. I need his column tonight. Didn't you ask me to do something about your job? Don't you have a kid in military school? You're a snake, Falco. You're a louse. A real louse. Honey, he's gonna help you. Annie Potts X Factor Award, the person or supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. I don't know. Who 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 do you have for this? I don't know either. <laughs> it's such a two-hander. Yeah, I feel like we should just erase this this category and and give Lancaster and and Can Curtis. Be, yeah, I, I just yeah, because I don't think Susan. I kept saying Marty. His his the actor's name is Marty, but his, Martin Milner plays Steve Dallas. I don't think he's that memorable i'm not saying he's bad i just don't think he's that memorable um i don't think susan harrison as as susan hunsucker is she's not given a lot to do it feels like i mean truth be told everyone in this movie is like steamrolled by the two leads they really are yeah yeah, yeah. i know i agree (sighs) i guess we're gonna have to do we're gonna have to (laughs) well there's no winner for the annie potts award never happened before uh but first time for everything um so the gene hackman mvp award person who carries the movie a co- I mean you could argue a couple people here because it could be director actor writer cinematographer i I'm, i'd go curtis especially to like show up and and play against type and 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 hit it like this yeah i would say curtis too because curtis both of them needed like it was a very different role for both of them at the time but i will say lancaster had kind of been in a few noir films previously um his first film even though he wasn't a big star it was his first one was the killers i believe where he plays mm-hmm. kind of a uh a noir character um he was in brute force he was in desert fury i believe he was in yeah, crisscross so he had played kind of roles of this before um that gained him a little bit of fame 
but yeah, and he and he had done from here to eternity, and he so he was I think a bigger star. I think it was a little bit easier for him to make that switch, but because Curtis was so, I guess younger in terms of Hollywood standards, mm. I think it was it was more important for him. So I would also say Tony Curtis. I just think he he ma- he carries the movie. He literally pushes the movie forward. I'm not. Sh- I wonder if I mean there are a few scenes without Curtis, but very few. And I think, because I think he later said, like, Sidney Falco never left him after this movie. Is that every movie he did after this had some kind of Sidney Falco trait hmm. about him? Because um, he was, he he related to this movie a lot more because he was from New York. This is a New York movie. He said, I wish this was the first movie I ever made. Because then that would establish his whole career trajectory mm. afterwards. Frankly, J.J., I don't think you got the cards to blitz me. I don't? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I'll listen for one more minute. About a year ago, I did you a certain favor. It was a thing, well, I never did such a dirty thing in my life. All right, all right, it's forgotten, forget it. Which brings us up to five weeks ago. Sydney, I got a nasty little problem here. Do so-and-so and I'll appreciate it. Did I say no? Was I fussy? Look, I'm the first to admit it didn't gel as fast as we like. Well, why all of a sudden can I get you on the phone? And why, as of this date, am I frozen out of the column? You finished? No, let me finish, J.J. I don't like this job. That boy is dumb on matinee days only. Otherwise, he's got a head. And Susan, like you said, is growing up two heads. What I mean, we got a slippery, dangerous problem here. Not we, Sydney. You. Correct me if I'm wrong, J.J., we. Because if I'm going to go out on a limb for you, you got to know what's involved. My right hand hasn't seen my left hand in 30 years. I'll do it, J.J., don't get me wrong. In for a penny, in for a pound, I'll go through with it. But stop beating me on the head. Let me make a living. Final questions. If this film was remade today, who do you cast? I've got this one. This is one time I'm I'm actually showing up prepared. (laughs) Okay. Who do you have? All right. Going with going with the several main comparisons we've made today. First off, David Fincher. Directing it. Yeah. Directing this. Uh, Going off of the fact that this had a Broadway musical adaptation and someone who is in you know david fincher's little deck of cards oh wow he likes that's to shuffle a good around pull. that's a good pull yeah i'm going jonathan groff for sydney falco that makes sense and here's my jj okay it's someone i think could absolutely nail this hasn't played a lot of like villains but absolutely could hit this stanley tucci okay i like that too because tucci's weirdly played several like studio executives before i think because he played like uh he was in a betty and joan the feud he's a he's i think he plays mm. uh uh jack warner or no he may have played xanic i can't remember he plays one of them um and then he was in some oh yeah i don't know what it was america's sweethearts the the Kanzai jones uh i gotta say very different vibes for going for my my david fincher sweet sweet smell success gonna be very different from america's sweetheart no i know uh maybe was much younger but yeah i could see tucci in that role the glasses he has the glasses down that you could easily use i like that i like jonathan groff and stanley tucci would it be a period piece it has to be probably right. Yeah, yeah, because be. that doesn't exist. Like if 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 it's if, if JJ is Perez Hilton, that's a completely different movie, which we could make. I, <laughs> I don't have the cast ready for it, but like Sydney's a, a young upstart at at, at um, TMZ. <laughs> 
and he wants to get in big with this online guy is what it is yeah he wants to get he wants to get on the show yeah do they, still, the, do, they still do that the tmc show that TMZ was a thing. live i can't remember if they do or not yeah. i know they, they, i know it what it was on during COVID. i know they just stand in the in the newsroom like what do you got <laughs> i saw you know i saw this sports figure coming leaving lax because we just stay at lax the entire time yeah, exactly i like both those picks could this be a tv series like a limited series a one season thing or is it just a movie i think it's a movie at least how i feel i don't want to spend too much time <laughs> with these people uh does this film fit with any other genres i mean it is it is it's a it's a noir yeah i would say a noir. Um, yeah simply for this this the visual style and how everyone is kind of a flawed character in some way and they're always after something that benefits them mm. yeah i would i would say that and there's crooked cops and crooked cops. crimes being committed and weird sexual energy throughout that's very true that's a, that's a noir through and through uh how does this film fit in the journalism genre staunchly in in one of the ethical dilemma very much so um, and 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 there are ones within the ethical dilemma journalism movies you do have some sometimes that are like i'm a good journalist but how far will i go to do my job and then you have some that just drop you in and they're like these are bad people from the start and this is the bad side of journalism yeah and i think that's why i thought of of nightcrawler um as well but that that's this is one that's just like from the get-go this is not how this should be done and you know it's kind of that that is where it differs from citizen kane you know citizen kane is like i'm starting out i'm gonna do this right and and he falls into unethical journalism yes and this is very much just like no we're unethical from the beginning Mm -hmm. um is there a chance that sydney can save his soul yeah but you know you know throughout the movie that that, that's always the question but you don't you don't have a whole lot of hope in this no Like I, I so that's why I do think they could, a little bit of the ending could tie up a little bit more, making that 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 fall more tragic is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I yeah, I think it fits very well in journalism. You have the, I mean, you have somewhat imposed deadlines, but it's not about the story. It's about like I'll have the plan done by morning or whatever he said because like Falco says to uh, um, uh, Lancaster if if or JJ it feels like there is a dead like an imposed deadline of some kind with the characters in a weird way it's not mm. journalism based but there's some sort of deadline here they have to do is that it on, on sweet smile success i think so it feels like it <laughs> um and there's more to go through guys i'm telling I me mean, if like it is very much citizen kane-esque in terms of the making of the movie and the aftermath of the film it's a very uh i said we could have done a whole thing on just that there's stuff i left out that's all we have for you on this episode uh we have a few more things coming up this month for journalism month i believe next week we're doing broadcast news what thomas's is it one of your favorite films or it's definitely one of my favorite rom-coms it's one of your favorite screwball comedies as we talked about a few months ago Mm-hmm. Uh, or a few, yeah. Uh, but broadcast news: 1987 film starring William Hurt, Albert Brooks, Holly Hunter, written, directed, and produced by James L. Brooks. Mm-hmm. Great film. Watch it before we cover it next week. We're also covering uh, Citizen Four. Uh, uh, ben Gertz coming back on the show to talk about Citizen Four. Big fan of that. Apparently, his movie, uh, that movie. Um, we have to figure out one more episode, and then our ending director episode for the month is Alan Pakula, director of All the President's Men clute and the parallax view a lot of paranoia 
movies. Also, the Pelican Brief, mm-hmm. which I think has journalism stuff in it. So uh, that's the month. That's the plan for this month, guys. Stay tuned. Um, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to Sun Nation Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. Yeah, guys. Any any way you interact with us boosts our uh, boosts how we show up to other people. So you know, do your part. Spread the word. Yeah, tell your friends, tell your family. I mean, just help us out. That's all we ask. Um, but uh, if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter and instagram again don't forget to watch some journalism movies this month it's gonna be a fun month thomas as always thank you for joining me absolutely and thank you all for listening we hope you listen to more episodes soon bye